Good afternoon and welcome back to the EJS show on the Liberty Block with Ed, Jody and Steve, once again joined by Mike and Ed. This show is being recorded live and will be available within a few hours as a podcast, which can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud and Rumble. We invite anyone listening to this as a podcast to join us live on Zoom or by phone and share your thoughts on the issues that we discuss. We also invite listeners to send any questions, comments, and other feedback they may have about the show to our email address, which is ejsshow at protonmail.com. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. Hey, Steve. Hi, everyone. So to start off light or not light from the uh, culture area, I had in our notes a few weeks ago ready to mention that there were a couple of towns in Massachusetts trying to legalize polyamorous relationships. And now there's a story this week in the New York Post about someone suing to marry his adult child. And I guess we could look at it from the cultural issues versus personal freedom issues. (laughs) I mean, I'll tell you how I feel after you tell me that I'm wrong, but who wants to- You know what? So I always- was, this is such a big thing for me because I always I'm I feel like I'm so socially tolerant. You know who people love is so none of my business. But holy moly, this puts even me in a position of H no. Are you kidding me? Like this is where I start to understand people who say this is a slippery slope to this really bizarre. You know. There's freedom and then there's letting people just be, this is crazy letting parents marry their kids. I mean, it's just, it, it challenges my, everything I believe about who people love is none of my business. Well, sometimes it's just, it's just crazy and it's everybody's business. Steve, we had a, a private conversation earlier today and I'll just repeat for everybody what I told you privately. And that's that, the voluntary aspect of a, of a transaction isn't the only moral, it's not the first, last, and only moral question to ask. Uh, for libertarians, it is. And if something is voluntary, that's really the only question that they want answered. And if the answer is yes, they bless it. Um, I, to me, uh, life is the standard of value, not voluntariness, or in the libertarian world, liberty. Uh, liberty to me is a means to an end and the end is life. Um, when people are using volunteerism for, for anti-life goals or anti-life ends, I, I don't have a problem with the government stepping in and saying, no, you can't do X, Y, or Z. You can't marry your child. You can't have a polyamorous relationship. Um, I'm okay with that. I, um, I have a slightly different take on that in that, um, you know, that, there, there are two questions, you know, there's the moral and the political, right? The moral question is, in, is incest a good idea? I tend to think not, not going to talk about that. But on the other hand, should you, should the government put people in prison or something if they engage in incest to adults? And I think they probably shouldn't. But that's sort of different than marriage, right? Because, you know, you got to ask the question, what is marriage, right? Why did the institution 
evolve. And I realize that it, marriage is under attack today uh, from so many different angles. But the basic idea of marriage is a commitment of, of two people uh, when they want to raise a family. And so it's marriage is a protection for the children of the natural children of the relationship. Marriage says any natural children that uh, the woman has are going to be, the man is going to be responsible for. And uh, the, um, any uh, natural children uh, are going to, you know, inherit and, and be taken care of. And, you know, the, it's the man and woman saying that um, we are going to be responsible for the children that are product of our, of our relationship. I mean, you could say, well, what about adopted children? Well, that, there's a contractual aspect to adopted children. So, you, you know, you can sign a contract for the adoption. But for natural children, there has to be some sort of a, of a, of a essentially a standard contract, a corporation. Remember how people can build a corporation, uh, you know, by signing some documents? Well, the marriage is that corporation that has been formed for the protection of the natural children of that family. And so it doesn't make any sense for people who are not planning or unable, unable to have natural children to get married. Um, and so I think the, the push among, you know, gay people and, and now these polyamorous people I mean, the whole idea of polyamorous marriage makes no sense because, I mean, who, who, who is, how, how is the child protected? You know, who does the child belong to, right? I mean, it is, is if there's five guys and four girls, are they all jointly and severably uh, uh, liable for the, the children? I, I don't know how that works. Marriage is not that. I mean, you could, could invent something that's that, but that isn't what marriage is. So- I, could you create a different label then, not call it, because marriage really was a religious rite of passage and then all the legalities in with it, but- Actually, no, it could became you... religious in the Christian world anyway. I, I can't speak for other religions, but in the Christian world, it, it became religion religious about a thousand AD. It was, it was mostly secular. It, went sec it was secular in, in Greece and Rome and in most of Europe um, until about a thousand AD when the church kind of, took over a lot of the social aspects of uh, life in Europe. And now I, I have no idea about other religions and other, other places, but it, was, it started out as a secular, exactly what I said, a contract so that we understand who is the rights and responsibilities of the parents of natural children. And I think, um, I think when, when, when gay people said, hey, we should have the benefits of marriage too. And they're talking about like tax benefits and, and hospital visitations and all of that. Um, you know, I had a lot of sympathy for them. And, and that's why the whole idea of, oh, well, we could call it some different civil unions or something and have all the benefits. But they didn't want that. And they didn't want that because they weren't interested in all those benefits at all. They were interested in the state because they're predominantly statists, mm -hmm. it, giving the impression uh, moral imprimatur of normality and approval to homosexual relationships. That's what they were interested in. And that's why they pushed for gay marriage. But it doesn't make sense from a historical perspective. And I'm, I'm, 
I'm still, I still don't think it makes any sense. So I asked, uh, I'm sorry, Ed. Well, go I ahead, Ed. Say, I, I agree with some of what you're saying, especially towards the end there. But, um, and I think that marriage, is, the purpose of marriage is to protect children. But I think almost in the opposite way that you say, um, I think that the, the fundamental nature of marriage is, it's the equivalent of emancipation. It's the way a child can say, well, yes, I was born to these parents. Yes, these parents get to you know, make decisions for me. Yes, if I die, my property goes to them. Yes, if I go to the hospital, they get to make final decisions. But hey, I, I'm able to make my own decisions now and I want this person to be my next of kin, not my parents. And it's the way to substitute the next of kin of your choice for the next of kin that you were born with. Um, and I think it's normal and natural and correct for uh, the parents to be the natural next of kin of, of children, but uh, there needs to be a means other than emancipation um, for, for children to get out from under that yoke. Um, you know, voluntary relation, you know, contracts are not sufficient to, to break uh, the next of kin rules that, you know, for parents, you know, like, for instance, at, you know, for hospital decisions or, or for inheriting property. I mean, I, as a lawyer, I, I, dealt, I dealt with a case around 12 or 13 years ago. It was in the late 2000s. And it involved a, um, you know, a typical you know, a gay couple. Um, the parents did not accept the relationship. We videotaped the will signing ceremony. We did a lengthy videotape. Um, we made sure to make clear that the that there was capacity, that there was not fraud, that there was no undue uh, influence, there was no duress. The two people really loved each other, and that this person wanted to leave his property to uh, to his lover. Uh, but as it turned out, because there was no marriage and there was no civil union statute in New Jersey at the time, um, he was not able to to do it. He was not able to cut off the rights of his parents to object to his will. And his parents did a lengthy will contest with, with the surviving uh, boyfriend. And the whole purpose of that will contest was to, you know, the parents basically said this wasn't a real relationship, that they didn't, he, they didn't love each other and that this guy, this survivor is just trying to steal my son's money. And, and that was just a horrible situation because we knew what the truth was. We knew we videotaped it, but as a matter of law, you know, we do have due process. The parents have the right to make the case that it's fraud, even if they're going to lose. And it was just a disgusting and, and drawn out situation and, and marriage or civil union uh, would have prevented that. Now, the problem in my view is that the people who opposed gay marriage also opposed civil unions, and that was the the mistake. And if they had just if they had just made that compromise, you know, in in 1997, instead of waiting until, uh, you know, 2014 or 2015 when Obergefell was decided, uh, you probably would have had civil unions. But what happened was they said no, and they drew a line in the sand. They weren't going to give on anything. And then once they lost the debate. The other side said, you know what, piss on you. You didn't compromise with us. We're not compromising with you. So we're not going to accept civil unions. We're going all the way for gay marriage. And that's how we have gay marriage. I, I don't I don't think they would have accepted a compromise yet. I, I think eventually. We'll never know. We didn't try. 
But this is what the left does, right? And when we talked about things like the Overton window before and what becomes acceptable, right? It, it changes. What wasn't acceptable wasn't in the window before and then it becomes, so incrementally the left just takes more and more and more. So it was just a matter of time before they were gonna go for the gay marriage thing. You know, what's interesting about the Obergefell decision besides the fact that it's, it, um, you know, unmoored from any legal standard um, was uh, that the underlying facts of the case were, I think, a lesbian couple who was uh, uh, dealing with inheritance and um, the partner uh, was going to have to pay inheritance tax. Um, but if she were, you know, a wife or married or whatever, she would not have to pay inheritance tax. The interesting thing about those set of facts is the proper decision would be to throw out the inheritance tax law as unconstitutional, as violating the equal protection clause, not to invent a, uh, a you know, a right to, to gay marriage. And that's, that's what a proper court would have done. They would have just thrown out the entire inheritance tax law. Especially given that a year or two earlier, they decided the Windsor case, which was also a tax case. And they specific, the Supreme Court specifically said, it's up to states to define marriage. We're only going to talk about tax benefits here. And then they, you know, a year or two later, they just went and changed their mind. Okay, well, shockingly, I disagree with everybody. <laughs> you know, this show started out as a conservative versus libertarian. I can't figure out why it's anybody's business, but anybody else does. And if you're going to argue that marriage is there for protection of the children, that may have been true in the Catholic model where you can't get divorced. It's not true in a no-fault divorce country where I believe all 50 states are. It's definitely not true. I'm very involved in the field of alienated parents. And the idea that the state is protecting a child's relationship with a parent is enough horse manure to fertilize all of Nebraska and Kansas. So none of that exists anymore, even if it was based on that. As far as polygamy goes, polygamy is, um, excuse me, Polygamy is a much older form of marriage, as far as I can tell. It's biblical. It was accepted in the Jewish world until about a thousand years ago. It was accepted in the non-Ashkenazic Jewish world until 60, 70 years ago. And from a non-religious standpoint, there's not much difference between marrying two wives and two men. So I just think it's nobody's business. If you watch the Sister Wives show, they're breaking the law because he's married to four wives, but a guy's allowed to live with 50 wives as long as he doesn't call them wives. So I think we're just in a big mix up right now. Um, I don't want to give the whole show over to it, but I think there's a lot of really interesting opinions to how this plays out. I don't get what gives the government the right to legislate morality when no one else is hurt. If this couple is saying we're not having kids, then why isn't anybody's business what they call it? Now, I also happen to believe the government should have nothing to do with marriage either, but that's a different issue. Why can't you call yourself whatever you want to call yourself? That, so, that's my point of view. Steve, I agree with you. And my only finding is suddenly, wait a minute, a, a parent marrying a child, that's where I'm finding, ooh, look, I have a line where maybe I, I don't know why. Jody, yet, but I, Jody, I have yeah. a line too. But my line isn't your line. And once I say my line can be forced on you, then we're going to argue about a whole bunch of other lines. I think they're insane. That's true. That's true. So they have a right to be insane because they're not hurting me. Differ. You you know 
reasonable people can differ and you still can use the, the democratic process to negotiate compromises. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. We don't need, you know, tablets coming down from Mount Sinai saying what thou shalt and shall not do in order to be You able want to have the majority, like if you're going to do it through the democratic process, then do we really want to have the majority? Dis- I don't know. I uh, Tyranny of the majority then? For people- a, also, what, I, what Steve and I talked about earlier, every single law is an embodiment of morality. The attempt to try and divorce law from morality it's a contradiction in terms. You can't, but I don't, we don't, we're not happy with that situation. That what gives any, we're five people here. And that means the three of us can vote to take all of your property, change all of your relationships, get rid of your jobs and everything else that we want. By what right? The three people get to vote two people's lives away. And there's no line for that once you say the majority rules. And how do we know that? Because we used to have a 90% marginal tax rate in this country. The solution for there's no bright line isn't to just erase lines and say we have an anarchy system where there's no rules and no lines and no government. I mean, yes, some of the lines are arbitrary, but that doesn't mean that they're wholly arbitrary. They can be negotiated and reasoned about and discussed. And, and you come up with consensus and compromise and and there's nothing, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's not it's about not consensus and compromise. It's me ruling you. And I, it's funny, this pushes me more towards libertarianism. What right do I have to tell you what to do? If I were to vote that you can't move out of New Jersey and we can't come to a compromise and I lock you in New Jersey, what majority rule gives me the right to do that? I guess I'm having a hard time justifying an argument against what you're saying other than it is purely a moral argument and, and it, it goes to the heart of what kind of a society we want to have. But you get, here's the problem with the moral argument. We don't agree on morals. People in Utah think it's fine to marry. Yeah, no, that, that, that's why I'm saying I, I, I'm having trouble with it because I, 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 you know, it is the libertarian in, in me and it's the non-aggression of, uh, principle that if you're not hurting somebody else, then why can't you just- No, I'm not going to go as far as our uh, president, who they're calling now Scrotus. Did everybody see that meme today? No. <laughs> what? I, I, okay. So-called ruler of the United States. I think that's what it stands for. When I find the meme, I'll be happy to share it. Who said that it's just cultural that China um, is genociding all of their Uyghurs. So I'm not going to go that far. But I think in, in any case, it's something on which we don't all agree and I think it really is an interesting subject overall. Um, I know where my line is. I know that there are places that will make my line gray, but I know where the so, line is. One of the big things for me, you know, if you told me 10 years ago that our schools were going to be having these conversations and bringing in, you know, trans people and this is where I start to say, well, I don't have anything against trans people or gay people, but I don't want them in our schools necessarily. And so take this subject to its long term and see, okay, well, 20 years, are we going to be forced to have this married couple where it's the mom marrying the son or, you know, bestiality all of a sudden is, well, you better accept bestiality and it better come into your schools or you hate everyone. Okay, so, so you know what, Jody? What's that? Excuse me. So I'm going to segue because this is a really good segue to the other subject that's much more in the news, the vaccine subject and the mandated vaccines. And 
This morning, I caught about an hour and a half of a New Hampshire State Senate hearing. Ed and I had testified at a uh, House hearing on something similar. This was the State Senate. And they had experts on both sides saying exact opposites of what everybody says, which is what you get experts to do. And you have status types who are very comfortable saying, you know what, public health comes first and it's none of your, it's not your um, individual right to stop what we put in your system. And then you have the individualists who say, there's no way in the world that you can force me to put something in my system. So if we go with all law is moral and that's okay, then there's no reason in the world the majority cannot vote to force you to ingest certain certain substances. And I don't know where that line would be. Now, as far as what you do to protect public health, that's a really, really tough issue. And I listened to that whole thing and I actually struggled with some of the arguments. I know somebody brought up the fact, well, if you refuse to take a vaccine, we'll force you to wear a mask when you're around other people. And I could probably live with that more. But I'm just saying, once we let the majority decide your morals and not your own morals, we're in a really funny place with vaccines. And that's really, really big. Now, one of the state senators said, I don't understand why you're trying to pass a law banning the mandating of vaccines. There's no such law anyway. To which I wanted to scream, oh, so you agree with us. You have absolutely no intention of ever mandating vaccines and you think it's wonderful. But she did want to mandate vaccines and they had a whole bunch of people testifying that if this is what it takes to protect the public, you have no rights over your body whatsoever, despite my body, my choice. So taking this argument to the vaccines, let's hear everybody's opinions. So can we not let states do what states do? Can't we let states mandate it if they want to mandate it and, and you know, let people vote with their feet? Isn't that kind of how we roll? Ooh. Well, I'm on board with Steve. Uh, I, obviously, um, there is a line. And I think that um, whether it's, you know, tran or uh, drag queens in third grade classrooms giving, uh, you know, giving instructions on how to perform oral sex or something like that. I mean, Obviously, the government shouldn't be involved in any schools, but assuming that they are involved, uh, it's the parents and the teachers and the principal and the school board who have to have to make those decisions. And what what has to happen is if the parents don't don't want that in their schools, they pull their children. There shouldn't be, you know, anti homeschooling or anti truancy or anti, uh, um, you know, that they should be able to put them in the private school or religious school or whatever they want. You know, if we, if there, if, if you had school choice, that would be a viable option. But for a lot of people, they don't have a choice, right? Yeah. They can afford private school. They don't have school choice in their area. So they're stuck. And as far as sister wives are concerned, I mean, if, if, if a guy wants to live with four stupid women, um, and he's stupid too, because trust me, one woman is plenty um, You're going to censor that out of this program. Uh, if he wants to live with four women and they want to live with him, what are we going to do? Send the cops in like, you know, Elian Gonzalez and break it up. And I mean, we're not going to do that. So, I mean, it's, it's dumb. It's well, actually they are. They are threatened with imprisonment all the time. I think bringing education into this, Jody, is also a good point. You have in states where this education is mandated by the majority they say morally, we have to make sure your children accept A, B, and C, and they mm -hmm. force it on you. And there's nothing you can do other than move. And yeah. not everybody can move. 
So that's why I'm uncomfortable with majorities because majorities go and not to bring up the, the Nazis, but everything was voted in by a majority at one point. So I, I have trouble with that line. You know, everybody has a different opinion. Right. Well, and that's what I was going to say to Ed. I, I didn't understand what your point was because I think Steve is not agreeing that there's a line. He's saying there shouldn't be any line that, that any line that, that's drawn by a government is per se unreasonable and, and not proper. Well, I mean, let's let's then go to where the left wants us to go, and that's pedophilia. I mean, that you know, that's obviously the next uh, um, thing on their agenda of this sexual revolution agenda. Um, and uh, you know, uh, first it'll be to lower the age from eighteen to fifteen or something like that, which I think um, Alan Dershowitz has uh, advocated. He, he's not a radical, but the the Nambla folks and say, hey, look, uh, kids can consent, you know, maybe not four-year-olds, but eight-year-olds can consent. Um, so, I mean, in a, in, a liber in a stateless society, an ANCAP society, what would happen uh, under that circumstance? I, I just shoot them, I guess, and then be tried and, and use the Texas defense. He just needed shooting, judge. <laughs> I mean, what else do you do? You know, what else do you do? I mean, this is where the train is heading. We can all see where the train is heading. Okay, but so, the problem is we don't all agree on morals. So Ed's saying we should compromise, but obviously that only works to a point. Obviously, well, yeah, well, isn't there's a difference between federal law and state law. So shouldn't the compromise be let states do what those voters want to do and those voters can decide and move accordingly? That you're going to have to be doing a lot of moving. Once you say, so the majority can wake up in your city today and say your children who go to school from tomorrow will be forced to attend class under threat of truancy and putting you and your husband in jail to sit through a class with condoms on bananas and a drag queen singing. No, and this is really happening. No, I know. I know you're, five -year -olds. Steve, I know that you're giving a, a, a drastic example, but I think it's this not drastic. It's happening. This country was founded on and built during the 19th century upon the principle that you can move in exactly that kind of situation. I think the frontier served as a major check on the growth of irrational government because people who got pissed off at stupid things like you're suggesting just upped and moved and they started a new community in Nebraska or Utah or Montana right. or wherever. You're going and, to bring me to my main point, because that also only works until the majority moves to California and changes it from California dreaming to the most insane state in the history of the universe. And then it's time uh, to move to another state. No, it's not it's time us. to move. It's, you, you can only move so far. And there are no other places. You know what? To, trust me, we've looked for them. There you know aren't what? Elon Musk is trying to open up Mars. Mars <laughs> is pretty far. There's actually a libertarian community somewhere in Europe in some small place. But the problem is the left doesn't let you live your way. They won't even leave one county free. They have to stop everybody. I mean, you know, I've always stood for keep one state free, keep one area free, but they don't leave you alone. And they will come into your city, your town and force this education on you. So like Ed P says, well, then go to private schools and go with uh, homeschooling, but that's illegal in many, many states. And try to get a voucher to follow a child for his education. 
So now the state in many different areas has put mandates that take over parental rights on their children. See, By the way, that actually came up in the vaccine debate. You know, they already can do vaccines against the wishes of the parents in many places. And now with COVID, can they do it too? So I'm just, if you give the majority that power. Struggling with this whole thing. Listen, because I, I, I agree to what we're, it's our body and it is our choice. But if you're dealing with a, a highly contagious disease, let's say if there was a, a real plague that emerged tomorrow and they had to develop a vaccine for it, are we going to then say, I don't have to take it? So here's your problem, Mike. Here's where you're stuck. Mike, luckily, you're, luckily, I have plenty of ammunition for this argument. They have the CDC has or is ruling that racism is a major mental health problem. And they are <laughs> ruling that, that is not funny. And climate change is the biggest health hazard in the world. And that means that the left can force you to stay in your home. The left can force you not to use any electricity. The left can deny you the right to drive any car because it's a public health right. emergency. Okay, I, but let's, I'm just saying, let, let's just stick to it. I, I understand what you're saying. But let's stick to the debate that had just a vaccine for a, a real health issue. Okay, I mean, kids today have to take MMR shots, right? They can't, they can't get into school unless they take it. Are we saying that, that they, they don't have to take it? You know what See, I mean? I, moreover, just, I think where where is the line? Where is the line when there is a disease that potentially does? You know what? If this were is deadly, people. if this were really deadly, it, so people would be doing things by choice. It wouldn't need to be mandated, right? I mean, there's fishy things going on. So I, don't I think know you know what's that? I, I'm not sure about that because you do have the anti-vaxxer crowd out there that doesn't want to be told what to do, no matter what. And again, I'm going to throw out, throw out a hypothetical of a virus emerges tomorrow that's wor far worse than COVID. If right? that happened, I think things would change in the mindset of people. But with this particular virus, I don't think so. We, we have an issue that... Go ahead. Go right ahead. now, the, um, you, you can't build a free country when the intellectuals are irrational and... Yeah. Uh, Amen, dude. And the media lies about, and the media and the government lies about everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, they don't lie every single time, not every single statement. Really close but to every they, single time. But so much is false yeah. that you have no idea how to judge what's true and what's not true. And like, <laughs> I've, I've gone down many rabbit holes with regard to the COVID thing. And I've read 500 medical journal articles. And I still, there are still things that I don't understand about it and about the way the reported numbers work. It's just, there, there's so much uncertainty that I just don't know what to believe about certain aspects of the disease, of the, of the um, vaccines and whatnot. It isn't smallpox. If it were smallpox, we'd all have to get a, a vaccine. But it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's worse than the flu. It's, it's, not, it's not nearly as bad as, as smallpox. I guess the point, the point that maybe I, I haven't If put we had a media that worked, if we had a government that didn't lie all the time, I think all of us would be in a better position to judge this particular <laughs> pandemic and these laws, well, but we don't. That, 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 that gets into fair. something so, that, that I've been trying. Fair. Totally fair. That, that's something that I've been trying to, to jump in and say. I mean, Steve, you keep bringing up this whole, all these examples. And, and really what you're saying is, 
we're not dealing with with good faith disagreements right now. We're dealing with people that are trying to exploit the benefit of the doubt to destroy our system. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to exploit the fact that, you know, we don't want to induce, we don't want to act unless we have certainty. And they're, they're acting on the fact that we don't have certainty to throw out nonsense like racism is a, a, a public health crisis and asking us to disprove it. And they're asking us to disprove a whole bunch of arbitrary nonsense that is not scientific and has no scientific basis. And so that's what the problem is. If, I think as Ed Powell is saying, we would be able, I think we could have a much more intelligent conversation about forced vaccination if we weren't being lied to by people that are trying to use the benefit of the doubt to destroy our system and that are trying to use COVID to destroy the last vestiges of freedom that remain in this country. Um, so that's my take on it. Well, the problem is that the majority ostensibly, and I have to say that it'll take us down from YouTube, voted for the current um, Congress and for the current SCROTUS. And they now can force us to do anything. And I, once we cede this power to the majority, it goes back to the two wolves and a lamb deciding what's for supper. I don't have the great answer to that. Laser, do you want to chime in on that? We have a special guest from very, very far. And as soon as we Relative. move off this topic, I want to go someplace where we never go, which is foreign policy. Lazy, if you want to chime in on this uh, vac mandating vaccines versus leaving it up to people's autonomy, you're welcome to chime in. I mean, I'm sure I'll just be seconding most things. I think that anybody who tries to mandate you putting anything physically inside you, I mean, we have a word for that in law and it's rape. So I, I kind of have qualms with that. Uh, if you don't want something in you, nobody gets to put it there by force. Nobody gets to mandate that or take away rights that you have, regardless of any sort of government existing or not privileges their rights. Uh, as, as was touched upon just as I joined here, how disingenuous all of this is, starting with the fact that, like I've been saying, as a clinician who bothered to look up what a PCR test is in the beginning of all this, realizing that PCR tests do not and physically cannot test for any sort of an active infection of any kind because that's not what they do and this is a qualm that i've been having forever as all of these numbers are flying through the roof and now where i live which i'm guessing you're going to touch upon momentarily everything is back in lockdown i'm traveling across the country tomorrow to take a break for a week and the entire kiev is locked down and that lockdown was extended just yesterday or this morning throughout at least the remainder of this month because PCR tests are still showing there are just so many COVID cases, except that's not what they show. It shows that at some point somebody interacted with COVID, which at this point, yeah, almost the entire world has interacted with it at some point. There's probably some shred of a remnant of it somewhere. And given how many times we're cycling most of the PCR tests, most of the labs around the world, I'm reading several things. They were talking about just random sampling of labs and realistically of the PCR tests coming back, a lot of places are getting 90 plus percent positives. Like Ed Powell touched upon with smallpox the second I walked in here, even smallpox did not infect 95% of people. It's ridiculous. That's it's a ludicrous thing. And smallpox killed roughly 5 million people a year, every single year, regardless of any measures, any country, any population, anywhere 
even at a time when the world had an exponentially smaller population. Smallpox was eradicated in 1978, eradicated from the Western world by the 50s, and still managed to kill somewhere between 300 and 500 million people in half a century. And we're worried about a virus that we truly probably have never tested anyone for after the first few people in China, where they actually identified it as being a unique genetic variant. Nobody's being tested for COVID. We're being tested with a PCR for some shred of a remnant of a thing. So Alaysa, I'm, you're I'm very anti-vaccination. If I remember correctly, even though you're very libertarian, you do not like anti-vaxxers. You're generally very- No, I think anti-vaxxers are lunatics. And that's what I was so about to say stand, and misspoke. Right, how do you jive that with being anti-mandating vaccines when you think people should be taking vaccines? I mean, I don't like doing crack and I don't like crackheads, but if you want to do crack, do crack. Okay. It's simply not my, not my place to say so. Okay, and the people who refuse to take COVID vaccines, then the majority can vote them out of civilized society. What do we do? I personally think we do nothing, and I think that we do nothing because this is not smallpox. This is okay. so. I, then to, what about to, the, and Ed brought up MMR pertussis? You know these these issues. You're okay with the government keeping your kid out of school if they refuse other vaccines. Well, again, and this begins to conflate some issues and gets a little bit more complex than I think this moment in this forum and this time. For me personally, I think everybody should be immediately precluded from all schools so that we can shut them all the hell down and be done with it and go back to educating your own children and not teaching them what they're told in a big government book that gets approved by 10 different government entities and regulatory agencies. I have no qualms to keep everybody out of school. Hell, if I could keep kids out of school, I would actually, as, as much as I hate anti-vaxxers, I would wait three days past the schedule so that my kids could get expelled from school and then go vaccinate them and now not have them, you know, myself get arrested for truancy. That's, please, by all means, kick everybody out of school. Do it. Okay, but so as far as them out of civilized society, people who refuse to get vaccinations, the ones that are accepted today for many decades, well, what do you do with them? I think that we have to hold them to the same standard as everything else. You get to take away somebody's rights, right? I mean, we can all agree at some point that there's imprisonment. If somebody walks down the street and stabs 100 people, we all want them locked up. Now, who locks them up? Different conversation, but that's a person who can't be in society. Why? Because they meet the standard of a clear and present danger. It's the same thing used in war. Is somebody a clear and present danger? Are you sprinting at a crowd with a knife screaming, I'm going to kill everybody I can get to? You're a clear and present danger. Somebody please shoot that guy. To contend that you are a clear and present danger, there needs to be evidence that you are physically going to hurt someone. If you can't even prove that I have COVID, you sure as hell can't prove that I can give it to somebody else. Okay, okay. So forget COVID. You remember a couple of years ago, the measles business? Yes. And that However, was you cannot. Serious. What would you yeah. do? Oh, no, it's a problem. It's a problem. However, I cannot point to any one individual and say, you, you with that face, because you did not get that, you are going to kill your neighbor. There's at most, we can say there is an existing possibility that at some point this happens and out of a gargantuan sample, a handful will wind up spreading a lot of things. However, because of a thousand unvaccinated people, 217 of them will wind up giving somebody some sort of an illness that doesn't give you the right to arrest a thousand of them or throw a thousand of them out of society. That's my opinion. Okay, rebuttals? I guess that means everybody agrees with you, Lisa. <laughs> I do, and I do, and the, so, the, I agree. So, I'm sorry. And no, the, no, you know, ahead, ladies first, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just gonna, 
expand on what he, uh, but agree uh, on, you know, um, it's one thing whether or not I, cause I'm not a huge gun person, but do I want any guns taken away from people? No, unless they're, you know, uh, shooting people, but it's the same. It is, you know, do I believe in vaccinations? Yes. But do I want to make criminals out of people who don't know? I don't know. Exactly the boat I'm in. I mean, I've had pertussis as an adult and I'll tell you, it's the single most miserable experience I've ever had ever worse than broken bones, worse than surgeries. I coughed from the middle of January to the middle of September. My night table at a point had 13 medications on it. I couldn't eat because I would just cough my food all over the place. I coughed until I vomited. I was afraid to drive because I was pulling muscles, miserable, agonizing, torture, hellish. I would happily punch anybody in the face if they didn't vaccinate their kid and their kid got pertussis and I put a child through that. I would happily punch them in the face. That's evil. But until if and when their child is clearly, and I can point to them and say, you, you are the problem. I don't get to say just because theoretically you might become the problem. You are the problem. If you haven't committed the crime yet, I can't arrest you yet. The bottom line to me is that Steven keeps asking for a bright line where it's okay to force people. And I think what Laser is saying implicitly and what I'm saying explicitly is there isn't a bright line. It's okay for people to disagree. It's okay that, you know, I think we all pretty much agree that smallpox is pretty dangerous or Ebola is pretty dangerous and people should be quarantined and maybe forced to vaccinate against them, depending upon how big the spread is. Whereas something that's not very dangerous and not very contagious shouldn't. And different people are going to draw that line differently and, and that's not a, a bug in the system. That's a feature. I mean, okay until, the majority, to... until the majority says everybody's going to die of COVID. Look, and now what are we the alternative? The alternative is you're just saying that there's no standard and we can't do anything to protect ourselves. Oh, I think there is an alternative. But with COVID, let's see. The majority decided it's the deadliest disease in history, most contagious disease in history, and shut the economy the down. That. They, I, I they did. They shut the economy down of the entire world for a year they lost i don't think the majority did that i think that people have usurped that i would so i'm with ed here the majority of people in power did that yeah yeah and i think they had a lot of support into power we voted them yes okay the two wolves voted for biden they voted for sununu they voted for cuomo in new york you know i don't know if i want to go off on this tangent because i want to move to the other subject but it was bothering me the other morning you know, we all have strong feelings about Chauvin and his interactions with Floyd. And another guy got shot to death by a cop. Um, nobody seems to really care about the poor Pakistani guy who got murdered by the 13 and 15 year olds in New York for getting off scot-free. And frankly, Cuomo probably did kill thousands of people and nobody gives a damn. Yeah. And in my opinion, I'm not an ANCAP person. I'm not an anarchist. But the fact is the government is responsible through not letting people take hydroxychloroquine and invermectin for the death of tens of thousands of people. And we don't care. Yeah. They will never go to trial. They will never be indicted. They will never be prosecuted. So I have a problem with government on that level because government is literally responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of people. But I want to leave that kind of for another day because I want to move to Ukraine. Well, I think that it's, I do think it's worth talking about that other police shooting in Minneapolis, though, or St. Paul. Um, I, I think, I mean, the two things that I take from that shooting are, number one, if you're, if you're confronted by the police, comply with their orders if you don't want to get shot. I'm not saying that the police are always right, 
I think that police make lots of mistakes. Steve, you can make, you can mock all you want, but the reality is if we're dealing with, if you want to, if you don't want to get shot, don't resist arrest. That's number one. And number Steve two, Heil, I agree with you. And, and if and you don't want to get bitten by a German shepherd, don't fight back. I agree with you. And number but two, I don't know that that's a good thing. Number two, nobody is willing to, 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 to deal with the elephant in the room, which is why, okay, I'm just going to say it. There was a time when police officers were six foot four, 240 pounds, strong men. This was a woman who was 20, 26 years on the police force. I'm not saying she doesn't have the, the mental capacity to be a police officer. Maybe she even had a physical capacity, but there's no doubt in my mind that that's something to be discussed. Whether, whether these diversity affirmative action type hires are, are at all contributing to this problem. Now, I know that, I mean, not all these police shootings involve women. Chauvin is not a woman. But in this particular case, you, you had a woman doing it. And I watched the video. I don't think that it was, I don't think that she had any racial animus whatsoever. Um, I, it looked like a mistake to me. But how much of that, how much of that is attributable to the fact that she just wasn't big enough as a human being to subdue this perp on her own? I mean, that she just couldn't throw him to the ground the way some big six foot four man might have thrown the guy to the ground and said, you know, a couple of expletives and put his face in the dirt. And that would have been the end of it. I got to thank you because I think you took away my position as the most radical stance today. I think I think I'm <laughs> off the hook. I wasn't going to go there to the gender <laughs> issue, which is a really interesting gender issue. Laser, if you can stay with us, we can stay on this topic and then move to Ukraine. If you can't, we'll. Yeah, I can. I can stay. I had a busy day, but my day is done. It's midnight okay. one here, and at this okay. point, I'll just be awake late, so I don't care. Okay, so if anybody wants to talk to Ed's issue about it, that's an interesting issue. I'll go into Ed's issue, Ed. I totally agree with you. And with that said, I don't think that's the case here. And the reason I don't think that's the case here is a. There were several other police officers on scene. She was not the only one trying to handcuff him. Um, I don't know what she looks like physically. I have no idea. My approach to this whole thing as somebody who spent a decade responding to emergency scenes where patients totally often either just try to run away or do turn violent, sometimes through fault of their own, sometimes because PCP will make anybody a psychopath who can bench press a car. So I've been on a lot of these scenes. I've been in a lot of these scenes. I've been the guy, you know, suddenly ducking a punch and helping hold somebody against the car so that we can secure him so that I can take care of him because he's way too high on meth and his heart rate's 5,000 and he wants to fight the whole world. So I've, I've been right in the middle of these. I've seen how cops interact. It's actually what began to turn me from cops are there to protect you to, wow, cops need to stop beating up my patients that I was talking to calmly and the cop became impatient. And after five minutes, when they wouldn't get in an ambulance, the cop would just go and literally throw them to the floor because they don't want to go. And I'm like, I'm sorry that you don't get to do that. But I think, I agree with you that I do think this was a mistake. I really do. I genuinely think based on her voice, the way she was moving, I think she really thought she was holding a taser. And I think that raises all sorts of other issues. One, their training is crap. That entire department's training is pathetic. For starters, tasers are always carried in your non-dominant hand. This is a law enforcement standard at every single level in the United States of America at the very least. The reason for this is so that, A, if you really do need to draw something because you're about to die, you draw your gun. You don't draw your taser. 
a taser is a very conscious decision after you try to talk somebody down, after de-escalation measures, between that and we're all about to die and I need to use my firearm as your taser. It takes a very, very conscious decision. And I say this as somebody who in the United States has spent a lot of years living in a place where I can legally carry a gun and I have a gun on my hip every single day. If anybody were to jump at me, I would draw a gun off my right hip in literally less than one second, and that's fine. What it would take for me to reach down to my left hip, which on rare occasion when hiking, if I had something on the right side I've had, it is so unbelievably unnatural. It takes a very, very conscious, focused decision to use your non-dominant hand to draw a weapon, especially for somebody who's been carrying a weapon for two and a half decades. Well, so, especially for someone who's a, you know who's not physically strong, you know, I get back to what I said. She's a woman, and I don't mean to put women down, but I don't think you can just take that out of the equation, especially when we're listening to Kamala Harris and all these other people tell us we've got to have diversity hires and, and you know, we've got to, you know, hire, you know, we had the story, I think, last week about the, the pilots that are going to be hired based on, on uh, skin color and gender. I mean, this is part of what happens that you don't, you know, you have, you have this woman who I'm sure that she was trained fine. She just panicked. That's what right. I think. But that's, that's panic. Okay. So I, there was, I have a slide somewhere. I forget the physician who gave the lecture, but one of his opening slides was just a great quote. And it simply stated that adrenaline is always the result of inexperience or incompetence. That's it. If you get overly hyped about something, you are not trained properly, period. You shouldn't be in that position. If you shoot at a Navy SEAL, they are never going to panic ever. If a hundred people shoot at a Navy SEAL, they're still not going to panic. They fall back on their training. That's good training. Right now, if I'm walking down the street and somebody suddenly goes into anaphylaxis and stops breathing, my heart rate is going to go up by like five beats per minute because I, I have a plan. Panic means you have no plan. Having no plan means you were trained like crap. From a training perspective, for her to panic like that, she's either completely psychologically unfit, which is something that probably surfaced immediately, or the department's training is crap. So either the department missed well, everything, the department has... What's Why that? not physically unfit? I mean, you say because that Maybe. wouldn't have anything to do with it because she would run the hell away, or she would intentionally draw her gun. The the for me the my focal point is the fact that she drew a a gun thinking she is drawing a taser, despite how difficult that is, despite how differently shaped the grip is in your hand, the difference in weight, the fact that it's bright goddamn yellow. I'm the only person who owns a bright yellow pistol. It looks like a Tonka toy. Cops don't carry bright yellow pistols for every reason similar to the cop in Texas who broke into somebody's apartment and shot them and claimed she thought it was her apartment, except, you know, the carpet is different. The walls are different. The lights are different. The door is different. Literally, there's so much disconnect involved in a, a mistake with that many red flags that this is, to me, at least how I read this, sheer, completely unadulterated panic. Listening to her voice, I have heard that exact tone of voice. Usually when a mother is slamming a blue baby without a pulse into my chest, that is when I hear women scream like that. That is complete mind gone, panic, everything out the window. There is no cognizance whatsoever. I genuinely think she thought she was holding a taser. I think she thought she was holding a potato at that point. I don't think she had a clue what was going on. Shoot, Can I ask a question? So... If, if, if lack of training is a problem, when did this become such a problem and why? Has it always been lack of training or is it what 
Ed M suggests, and maybe a little bit of our diversity thing gone wrong, like they're untrainable or something. So I totally agree with that. I think diverse, that diversity crap is, is awful. I, I don't think it's necessarily the crux of this exact case. Is it overall? Of course it is. I was in New York City when the FDNY lost that lawsuit claiming that the firefighter exam was racist, retroactively hired countless firefighters who had failed the exam, which I have personally taken. And it's impossible to be racist because 100% of the exam is based around a machine that does not really exist. So as you go throughout the exam, it teaches you more about this non-existent machine, which is done by design so that nobody can come in with an advantage of some sort of familiarity. It is literally a machine that doesn't exist. You learn everything there is to know about the machine in little video snippets or in blocks, or you read some sort of a blueprint or whatever it is. And then the questions are there. And through this, it does math, reading comprehension, critical thinking, and so on. It is literally impossible to say this exam is racist is to say black people are not intelligent. The statement that the firefighter exam for the FDNY is racist is the most racist thing I've ever heard. So they went retroactively hired a bunch of people who failed this exam. A lot of them failed out of the academy. Several of them were minority women who failed the academy were allowed to go through, retested, 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 and at least two of them failed the first time, the second time, and the third time, and then were still graduated anyway. And one of those on her very first call ever on a fire engine went to a fire, stepped off the truck, injured her ankle, and immediately went on Lodi, which is, I forget the exact thing, but it's, it's like lightweight duty where you sit behind a desk. So that was her first call ever. She never actually made it to any real call. And since they were all retroactively hired, they were hired as if they had all those years on. They were hired at top pay already. They were retroactively paid. So this woman was costing people something like eighty-six dollars or $96,000 a year, despite having failed the graduating run three times for her physical. I mean, these diversity hires are clearly a problem. There's plenty of evidence behind that. I don't think it's the case here. And I, not that I know what the hell it was like 26 years ago, because I was a very small child 26 years ago, but I don't know if diversity hiring was as much an affair three decades ago as it is today. That I don't know. You guys might. There is one issue that I mentioned in an email to some of you the other day that I wanted to bring up about this case. And that is that it was almost certainly an illegal stop. Now, this woman has been arrested. She's been charged with negligent homicide or the equivalent. She'll be convicted. Uh, you know, you can't stop every crime. She's going to face punishment for this. I don't think she's going to get off. But what happened to this scumbag, because I'm not giving him the um, benefit of the doubt, is that he was stopped for allegedly having an air freshener on his um, his uh, rear view mirror. Now we all know that that's not true. Nobody, nobody stops someone for air freshener, even if it is against the law. And this happened to me right outside my house here. Once I was driving by and I was stopped by a cop. And uh, the, the reason was that the, the uh, license plate frame that the guy at the dealership put on that said the dealership name was too big. That was his thing. So I finally found out what happened later. They were just sitting there running license plates running license plates, running license plates, not allowed to do that. That's, uh, they have to have probable cause to look into you, but they do it anyway. They run the license plates and it's all kind of 9-11 based. Like they're afraid they're gonna miss somebody. And it came up that someone with my name had an outstanding warrant in New York, uh, New York state. And it popped up on the computer and, and uh, he pulled me over. And then of course he had to have probable cause to pull me over. So he invented some cock and bull story. We all know it was false. 
I talked to his sergeant later and he said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You know, and he kind of gave, gave me the idea of what actually went on. This obviously went on with this guy. Nobody can see um, something hanging from a mirror and no cop is going to pull you over for having something. I don't care who they are. They're just not going to do it. They're obviously running license plates. They found the outstanding warrant that the guy had. It was a gun warrant, which is serious. And so they pulled him over. They invented the thing, uh, the hanging tag thing to do it. So um, I think he'd have been fine if he had just not resisted arrest. Now, in my case, I was like, what's this about, you know? Did I do exactly what the policeman told me to do? Yes. Did I pull over immediately? Yes, I did. Did I give my license registration? Did I stay in the car when he wanted me to stay in the car? Did I get out of the car when I, did I do everything he told me to do? Yes. Did I walk away alive? Yes, I did. So again, there's a little bit of non-sympathy for this uh, criminal that I have for not doing it, but it was an illegal stop. And that's one of the things that I think we ought to realize that the cops are doing now. They are illegally they're running your license plates and illegally stopping you and making up some reason that they uh, Ed, they stopped you I, I really hate to argue but our fearless leader elliot has written numerous articles on liberty block about license plate readers and he's fighting them in new hampshire and other places and the majority has ruled that they are legal and the majority has ruled that cops can check out ten thousand license plates every single minute and run them against any database they want and stop you for them so I don't know why you think they're not allowed to do that. They're doing them everywhere. Okay, then I stand corrected. I thought I had looked it up at the time, which was five or 10 years ago. That may be five or 10 years ago. You may be right. I don't know. But yeah. In New York, there's not a cop car without four radars on them. And they, and by the way, I, I can't say from where I have this information, but I know for a firsthand fact that a cop on a phone app can tell you where your car is by your license plate every single minute for God knows how far back, and I've seen it done. What? Wait, say that again. I'm not making this up, Jody. They have an app on their phone. They can type in your license plate and tell you exactly where it was always. Because those LPRs- Why? How? The LPRs are catching them all over the place. It is it is so scary. I've seen it. I'm not making What's this- What's the LPR? License plate, license plate reader. If you ever see something that looks like an odd camera generally mounted on the trunk or near the trunk of a police car in New York City, they've become almost 100% ubiquitous. And what cops like to do is they sit right after toll booths. Since then, you have to go into this narrow lane. So you have to come out and they can just aim it directly at that narrow lane where you're forced to funnel through. And they will literally just sit there, wait for a hit, and then pull you over 100 yards later. They've been doing this for like five years in New York. Yeah, and they will say at five o'clock yesterday, you crossed this bridge. And at eight o'clock the day before that, you were at this intersection. It's unbelievably scary, um, the, the big brotherness of it all. And again, can we move to Ukraine? I got to be honest, man. it's almost it's outside of the right to carry a gun. I genuinely day to day have more freedom than you have in New York City. I really do. So what I want to do is. We never talk about foreign policy, and I have a lot of um, confusion about it myself. I'll let Laser give slight amount of the background of what's going on, but between Ukraine and Taiwan, I know Pat Buchanan had written an article. I know Tucker is very, very isolationist. I know Lindsey Graham is pretty easy to predict. He'll throw soldiers, any, soldiers anywhere in the world, as will Liz Cheney. I have a lot of issues on both sides. But Laser, if you want to give us a brief introduction to 
what it is that's happening in Eastern Ukraine. And um, then we can talk about as voters, what do we think we should or should not be doing? So I, where do you want me to begin I, from total scratch on what's happening out here or just what's happening over the last month or so? The one, the one minute short story of why Russia is building up troops. What's going on in Ukraine, the background and what's going on now? So the background of the entire thing is Putin had several reasons to be angry and there were several moves made. There's also historically uh, the region that I live in, the day to day used language on the street for 99 percent of the population is Russian in this region, while everyone in the almost in the entire country, though now not as much quite in the far west. Everybody's perfectly fluently natively bilingual in Ukrainian and Russian, which are significantly distinct languages. In Kiev now, people generally speak Ukrainian. In the far west, in Lviv, everybody speaks Ukrainian. Where I live, everybody speaks Russian. In Crimea, everybody speaks Russian. And then there are numerous other pieces that go into this, just to touch upon some of them. There's the fact that prior to the Crimea annexation, uh, Putin was losing favor with a lot of Russians. And one of the reasons for Crimea, per one of the Russian guys that I work with, who was like, no, 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 this is absolutely why it happened. And everyone in Russia knows it is he needed to win some curry, some favor back in Russia, show that he still had the strong hand here. And he basically walked in and just took Crimea. They didn't go to war. They just took it. Uh, the Donbass itself in this specific region. So after in 2014, and there's an interesting documentary on Netflix that's mostly accurate, it's worth watching. But in 2014, the president of Ukraine was essentially in Putin's pocket. Ukraine was vying to join the European Union. They got close. He pulled out at the last second. Ukraine protested. Uh, it was peaceful at first. They refused to leave, so he made it less peaceful. Eventually, they pulled prisoners out of Ukrainian prisons, shoved them in police uniforms. And at the end of the day, they wound up shooting Ukrainian citizens in the streets. It all went to hell. And the Ukrainian military, some of the units said, hey, leave now, or by morning, we're rolling into Kiev in tanks. He disappeared to Russia in a helicopter in the middle of the night. He's still there under Putin's protection. However, now it's a place at war. Now, part of this is since the West helped depose this guy, which kind of put Ukraine in Russia's pocket, Putin got pissed. And that's part of why when there were separatists in the East, where I live in the Donetsk and, Ob and Lugansk oblasts, uh, Putin was very happy to support them as a screw you to the West. So that's part of why. There are numerous other reasons. Crimea also gave him the second half of a strait called the Kerch Strait, which is the only waterway into the Sea of Azov, which feeds a decent amount of southwestern Russia and also about a third to a half of Ukraine by water. So it's a relatively important waterway. And by taking Crimea, he now owns both sides of that strait. They built a bridge over it, which is how they're rolling so many tanks and troops into Crimea now. There's there are a lot of pieces at hand here. Within the last month or so, uh, maybe a little bit more, so there was a peace, whatever deal of some sort, ceasefire signed last summertime that expired. I believe it was on April 1st officially. They all sat down in Minsk again to have some talks about it. Russia didn't really come to the table. So that has lapsed. And roughly around when that was lapsing is when they decided to really pick things back up. The actual numbers are hard to believe. I get some information from the inside. Some I can talk about, some I can't. Uh, the Ukrainians are now saying there are more than 40,000 troops each on the border of Donetsk and in Crimea. Uh, other reports are saying you're looking at somewhere in a total of 30 some odd thousand. Who the hell knows? It's in Ukraine's benefit to inflate those numbers, obviously, because they garner more support from the West. It's in other parties' benefit to kind of quash those numbers so that if there is a larger force, nobody's really prepared for it. 
we don't really know. What I do know is that in the last few weeks, and this is public information, and you can go read it online because the organization I work for publishes a daily report on this stuff. There's been a significant uptick in violence around uh, what they call the contact line between the separatists and what's controlled by the Ukrainian government. So an uptick in shelling, there's been, there have been a handful of Ukrainian soldiers killed by snipers every week for the last almost month. Now, uh, one of them not far from where I was just a few days ago while I was there, and we wound up talking to one of our liaisons, and he said, hey, a guy just got killed about two hours ago, go over yonder. So uh, we're, we're starting to see an uptick in shelling in radar jamming of uh, unmanned aerial vehicles from all sides, uh, just overall stuff. Uh, we've been put on a slightly higher alert. We've been altering some of our operations. We've all been told to have a go bag ready just in case it actually does hit the fan because if it really hits the fan we are close enough to the line that it could get a little bit uneasy so i don't really know how this is all going to unfold putin's obviously putting together a massive show of force whether or not that's all bark and no bite in the hopes that that many troops will just intimidate people into calming down i don't know i don't know if anybody knows but it's, it's an interesting time out here for sure. And then that brings up your question of isolationism versus not. Uh, Ukraine, just from a, a more legal standpoint here, Ukraine is not a NATO country. However, if Russia really took over a lot more of the water and started to do more in the Black Sea, which the US is now sending a couple warships to, and if in an imaginary world they took over Ukraine, they would suddenly be on the border of several NATO countries who also sit on the Black Sea uh, I think it's Bulgaria and Romania or NATO or something like that. So uh, there's a lot of uneasiness. And then once you have a NATO country, now the whole NATO is involved, which essentially would turn a hot conflict into a world war. So I, I really don't know how this all unfolds. And the question of how long do you stay isolationist versus when you intervene, I personally don't know. Am I mostly isolationist? I think so. Looking back, do I believe that somebody should have taken out Hitler before Sudetenland disappeared and then Poland went poof too? Yeah, that probably would have been a good idea. I don't quite personally know where you draw that line. I don't know at what point you consider the risk great enough and imminent enough that you have to. Could I play the devil's advocate here a minute? And by the devil, I mean Putin. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So when... uh, you know, in 2004, the the Russian favorite government was kind of thrown out in the Orange Revolution and a, a pro-Western government was put in. And then again, in, in like 2012, I think I, I'm remembering the dates wrong. Another pro-Russian guy was elected uh, president. And uh, in 2014, there was the uh, sort of revolution that uh, Lazar uh, talked about. Um, that revolution was planned by the United States, and um, Putin released the comment um, uh, that he got between two um, U.S. representatives talking about how to escalate uh, the uh, um, escalate the tensions and remove the. I, I, I'm not a fan of the guy, but he was the guy who was elected, and he was pro-Putin. Um, Putin, as far as I can tell again, as far as I can tell, has moved from a KGB, you know, communist to a Russian nationalist. And he, when the Soviet Union just dissolved, there are a lot of, of ethnic Russians. We don't think that way as Americans, but there are a lot of ethnic Russians um, outside of the borders of what Russia is. And Putin, for the most part, wants them back. And uh, I think 
um, when the United States, uh, you know, signed a bunch of agreements with uh, Russia after the uh, Soviet Union fell, one of them was not to expand NATO eastward. We broke that agreement. Um, one was to, um, you know, uh, not interfere in the internal affairs of the former Soviet republics. Uh, of course, we broke that agreement too. And um, I think in the Clinton administration, um, again, this was under Yeltsin before Putin came to power, but Putin was there. Um, the United States engaged in a war against Serbia. Now, as you guys remember from World War I, uh, Serbia was uh, ha and has been a key ally of Russia for centuries. And in fact, um, it was Germany's attack on Serbia or their mobilization for an attack on Serbia that caused Russia to enter World War I, which caused France then to enter on Russia's side and England to enter on France's side, on Russia's side and, and cause that whole thing. Russia and Serbia are tight. And the United States, because we're geniuses at down the road here, thought that, oh, great, Russia's in chaos now. We can beat the hell out of Serbia, get rid of Milosevic. Again, not a good guy, but none of our business. And uh, Putin was like, this has got to stop. And so when you poke the bear too many times, the bear is going to get annoyed. And what's an incredible is that Putin has been very, Putin is smarter than everybody in every building east of here. Um, he's been very moderate in his response, very moderate. And uh, every provocation that the United States and the West has given him, he's basically shrugged off until the Ukraine, until they overthrew the Ukrainian government in 2014. And then he says, okay, that's enough. Uh, there's an old saying that in, in war, the enemy gets a vote. And the United States foreign policy since the fall of the Soviet Union has been, we can do whatever we want and nobody gets to say anything. And so he just wanted to show the United States and the West that he can say something. And the first thing he said was, I got to get Crimea from, for a from the strategic standpoint. So he took Crimea. As for Donbass, again, that's, you know, a lot of killing for no particular reason. Um, I think what he wanted to do was support the, um, the separatists uh, there, the Russian separatists, and uh, by infiltrating Russian arms and Russian troops, Russian uh, weapons. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just a morass. And I think he's going to push and push until the United States decides to not interfere. It would be just like if the Chinese overthrew the Mexican government in, and uh, the uh, appointed a pro-Chinese uh, president to Mexico who wanted to embrace a military treaty with the Chinese. I mean, we would go completely nuts over that. And that's why he went nuts with uh, Ukraine. He just, that is, that's uh, beyond the red line for Putin. So your Lately, head is we should learn more the troublemaker than the peacemaker. Uh, so, yes, I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, we invaded Iraq for no particularly good reason. You know, I mean, the Kuwait was a, a decent, you know, there was a decent reason beyond that. But um, we invaded Syria for no particularly good reason. Again, Syria's Russians ally. They have been forever. Um, as far as lately, there has been a big push within our new administration to um, amp up the Ukrainian part of Ukraine to go and take back Donbass and there's been weapons and um, 
moral support for uh, which I've read again in the Washington Post. It's like, you know, we can do it, you know, go, we got the weapons now, we got the artillery now, we can go take Donbass back. And um, this is Putin saying, no, you're not. So don't even think it. I don't think he's going to invade uh, the non-Russian part of Ukraine. And the reason is because the Ukrainians hate the Russians hate them with a passion of 10,000 sons. The Ukrainians sided with the Germans until Hitler was stupid enough to start murdering large numbers of Ukrainians. They, they thought the Germans were the best thing that ever happened to them. Um, and then Hitler blew it as he usually blew his military advantages by his stupid uh, racial uh, theories. Um, and uh, I, they hate the Germans and they hate the Russians and they are absolutely not going to uh, allow, they'll fight to the last man to keep Russia from uh, taking over Ukraine. And I don't think the Russian troops have it in them to take over that. It would suck the entire modern Russian army, um, which is small. It's not the Red Army anymore. Take the entire Russian army to invade and conquer Ukraine, and it would be an insurgency like the Russians have never seen before. So he's not going to invade Ukraine, but he's not going to allow Ukraine to invade uh, Donbass. And that, that's kind of the Putin perspective, which I get from reading pro-Putin propaganda, right, which you can find on the web, but that's their position. Now, Laser, what do you think of that? I honestly agree with every single word you said. I think that's an absolute, for somebody who's not here, I mean, I'm part of what I do is literally observing military positions and things like that. So I'm, I'm relatively in the loop that is for somebody who's not here. That's actually a pretty fantastic breakdown, uh, a really solid understanding of what's happening over here. I'm admittedly extremely impressed. Uh, I was having a similar conversation with somebody just the other day about how far I think he'll push. And I agree. I think he would absolutely take the Donbass and I think he has no interest nor the time nor the inclination to go further a, just the sheer size of Ukraine means, as you pointed out, this would be an all-out war. This is the biggest country in Europe. Ukraine is like 1,500 miles wide. That would be like you trying to invade southwest Texas from New York. The, the sheer just moving troops that far. I mean, we're talking about an unbelievable undertaking. And then you would also be running into territory bordered by numerous countries, all of which would be pissed off. You'd be fighting a war on 20 fronts. I don't think he has any interest. I, I can definitely attest to the nationalist Ukrainians having a special sort of hatred for the Russians. I have run into translators whose job it is to translate back and forth between English, Ukrainian, and Russian. And when I ask them, hey, how do you say this in Russian? I get a dirty look and a, you live in Ukraine now, learn Ukrainian. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll back off. So that is, uh, no, I, I genuinely think you nailed almost 100% of that to the only thing that I would add is Donbass does actually have a lot of benefit. Donbass has a massive amount of factory and mining infrastructure and a tremendous amount of mineral natural resources. There are some massive, massive open mines here. There's coal, there's uh, coal here, there's oil here, there's all sorts of minerals here. So if it can be controlled without the possibility of shelling landing on you and this stuff could actually be dug up and mined, a very good amount of the natural resources and the inherent wealth within the country of Ukraine is in the Donbass. And by taking a relatively small slice of land, you could take a really large chunk of the economy. So it, it while it is native, um, as you pointed out, nationalistically, this is a really a Russian area. 
it very much is. Uh, like I said, Russians, what's in the streets every day until January 1st of this year, when a law went into effect stating that all signs and official stuff, uh, restaurant menus, things like that have to be in Ukrainian until then, even when I arrived last year, most of it out here was in Russian menus were in Russian signs were in Russian. Uh, you made a phone call to a business. It was in Russian. So this is very much a, a Russian part of Ukraine as is Crimea, which is why there wasn't really pushback and there was a lot of support for it because Russians feel it's still Russia and a lot of Crimea feel it's still Russia. So when Russia said, Hey, we're going to take it, they're like, Oh, oh okay. And that was, well, let me, that let was me ask everybody a question. So at least, okay. If Russia doesn't move in officially into any part of Ukraine, everybody agrees it's none of our business. And even if they would take over this particular area of Ukraine, would everybody here agree it's none of our business? This is where I get confused. Well, I don't know that it's, I think it's our business, but I, I think you can't just look at things in a vacuum. You have to remember who's the president right now. And there is absolutely nothing that Biden can do in foreign affairs or he can do in Ukraine or Taiwan or China or any place that's going to make the situation better for America. The best thing he can do is nothing. And it's, it's sad. And, and I think it means that Taiwan is going to go down the drain. I think it means parts of Ukraine are going to go down the drain. Uh, but uh, I, I don't, I don't see any good that Biden can do. And I don't see any good that can come from the Republicans insisting on military action. I think the Republicans in, in Congress should say this is a presidential matter. We will give the president whatever tools he thinks he needs. Uh, we will conduct oversight. Uh, but uh, this is an executive function. And uh, we're going to, you know, if the president wants to act, he's going to have the tools to act and he's going to have the, the authority and the responsibility. Okay, so two more questions, Ed. Yeah. If you were president, how do you feel this should be handled? And second question, is NATO a good idea altogether? Or was that also a little bit of um, sticking our nose into other people's business? Um, I think that's a false alternative. I think that NATO had some important functions at its outset. I think even after the fall of the Soviet Union, we had some reasons to, to maintain the alliance. But at the same time, you know, for instance, Turkey is a NATO member and Turkey is, is a conduit for some of the worst elements of the Muslim world to make it into the West. So I think that Trump wanted to rethink NATO and I think that that was a, a good thing. I think that we need to re rethink NATO, not just in terms of who's funding it, but what its purpose is, what its mission is, who should be members, who shouldn't be members. Um, and I think that that's a long overdue conversation. Um, likewise, when it comes to foreign policy in places like Taiwan and places like, uh, like the Ukraine, uh, I don't think there's a one sentence answer. I think that our, our foreign policy has been so abominable and so abysmal that I, there's so much that needs to change. Um, you know, we need to disengage from China, period. Um, and we need to stop placing cheap iPhones, if you can call a, a $1,000 iPhone cheap, uh, ahead of national security. Um, we, need, we, need to, we need to rethink a lot of our foreign alliances. And uh, 
you know, I think that that both of those countries are, are at the center of what needs to be rethought. Um, would yeah, I go along with it? I would say, listen, I, I think we have a role to play in the world and standing up to some of these bullies and, you know, turning the levers where we can, short of actually going to war. I don't favor going to war because of Taiwan or Ukraine. I don't see that being in our national interest. And I reject the notion of isolationism on the other hand. Uh, you know, I think the founders would probably say we need to be prudent. Prudence should rule the day when it comes to our foreign policy, that we need to approach things rationally, <clears throat> do what we can, form proper alliances when we can, when they further our national interest, but we shouldn't be risking our national security, the, I think, the I, lives of the American people for some of these foreign countries. That, you know, to me, that's where we draw. I have to I disagree a little bit. With generally, is rational, and I think that you know Washington's last uh, farewell address warned about entangling alliances. And you know, I, I don't think that as a I don't think that should be a general rule that we get involved with with alliances. I think that yes, they have some purposes. Yes, they have a role, uh, but um, I think we should be circumspect about it. And I think uh, I, I think that we should be willing to go it alone and be isolationist a lot more. And um, I think that tools like uh, economic embargoes and not trading with countries are far, far preferable to me than going to war with countries. I'd like to disagree with Ed briefly. And that is that, uh, you know, Nate, uh, NATO grew out of the Second World War, Second World War grew out of the First World War. We'd have to go all the way back to try and understand it all. We're not gonna do that. Um, when the Soviet Union fell, <laughs> there was a thought that the rump Russia was just uh, as dangerous as the Soviet Union. That has turned out not to be true. I don't think that there's any real need for NATO. As the uh, yes minister once said, the purpose of NATO was to keep the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans down. And so uh, that has kind of, um, you know, th those times have, have gone away now with the European Union, which is a disaster, but that's a whole nother story. The problem with Ukraine and what we should do about Ukraine is there's nothing, the we, America could do lots of things with regard to Ukraine, but there's nothing we can do that Putin can't do something worse in response. He gets a vote. So it's, it's a hopeless position. People who want to fight a war on the territory of the historical territory of Russia, that's a mistake. The, the, the American military is pretty good, despite the wokeness, we would get our asses kicked if we went into Russia, and as just everybody else did. Now, Taiwan is a completely different situation. We do have a, a responsibility to Taiwan. Um, people seem to think that there's going to be some sort of Chinese amphibious invasion of Taiwan. That is absolutely not the way it's going to work. I think the uh, amphibious invasion uh, route is uh, militarily ridiculous. Um, and it's so very uh, 1944 in its thinking. It'll be an air assault and they'll seize a airhead somewhere and then they'll pour troops in through the air. And that is, and, and that's, how, how did we take Guadalcanal? How did we win the entire second world war in the Pacific? Uh, we did an air assault to take airfields. We used the airfields to project power. Um, we did do some uh, amphibious assaults, and they all turned out to be disasters. Iwo Jima, Tarawa, um, you know, 
huge numbers of Americans killed. So the question is, can we prevent a uh, amphibious assault on Taiwan? Yes, we can. Our submarines are extremely high quality. And can we um, prevent an air assault? Yes, but they don't have the right kind of weapons. And so the answer would be, should we covertly deliver, because there's no way we could actually sell them without pissing China off, covertly deliver the appropriate amount of air, anti-air weapons to um, Taiwan to make an air assault extremely expensive for China. And that's what we should be thinking about. So, right so what I'm asking you, Ed P, is why should we care about Taiwan? Um, well, Taiwan, I don't know. There are plenty of countries in the world. Uh, should we care about all of them? You know, if, if the Hutus murder the Tutsis, is it our job? Uh, probably not. Um, but there are a number of countries that are, you know, Western countries that uh, have Western values. And um, Taiwan is one of those countries. And it is a country that the United States betrayed, um, you know, in 1973. And part of our betrayal was we're going to betray you, but we're going to protect you. That was our deal with the Taiwanese. It worked out great for the Indians. Well, yeah, we're going to betray you, but protect you. I know. Um, so I think, I, plus, as far as manufacturing and electronics, Taiwan and South Korea are the premier places in the world. People think of China as the um, place in the world. The United States can't win a war against China because we have no pharmaceutical manufacturing capability. China, that, that's all in China and India. So we don't want to get into a, war, a lengthy war with China because there's not going to be any pharmaceuticals for all of us who take pharmaceuticals. Um, but on the other hand, all our electronics industry, which we desperately need to stay a modern country, comes from China, yes, but it also comes from Taiwan and South Korea and Japan to a certain extent. If we allow those three countries to um, be dominated, you know, taken over by China, the the United States is a third world country tomorrow. Ed, let me ask you a question. Right now, uh, Japan is not armed with nuclear weapons. I, I think they said they could ready them up in a hurry. But at this point, doesn't it make sense for them to do so and as, as a way to obviously um, quell the threat from China at this point? My personal opinion is that nuclear weapons are not terribly useful. And so I don't know why, um, I don't know what they would do. I mean, would the Japanese actually use them? Um, I, I don't know. They're a deterrent. We know they're a deterrent. They're a deterrent when, it, you know, between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Uh, they haven't been a deterrent between the U.S. and China, have they? Um, so I don't know. Um, I don't know whether bringing nuclear weapons, giving them or you know, allowing them to happen to Japan, Korea, and Taiwan um, would be a good idea or not. I don't know. I haven't gamed that out. Um, I'm certainly not against it in principle or anything. Um, they all have signed the non-proliferation treaty, so they have treaty obligations to not building nuclear weapons. Um, the Japanese have not quite gotten their testosterone back. Um, so I don't know whether they'd ever do it. Um, 
I don't know. I don't know what it would be. You know, what, what, okay, so China does this air assault against some airfield in southern Taiwan. That, that's what they do. What's Taiwan going to do? Are they, they're going to nuke Shanghai or Beijing? I mean, what, what, how, how would you actually employ nuclear weapons to, you know, as a military, as a weapon, you know, as, as opposed to just as a, as a um, uh, mass, mass slaughter? I, I, you know, there are ways to use nuclear weapons as weapons, um, and they were developed in, you know, in the response to the Cold War. But we didn't really develop any. You know, we were still in the sort of mass slaughter mindset. Um, so we don't have them, and I doubt anybody else does. I don't know. I'll make I'll make one small point to Japan. I think that Japan might be a little bit different in regard of, of how much it has the fear and a real assault coming out of China versus Taiwan and Korea. The United States military has a pretty massive presence in Japan, which includes a naval presence, a very significant air presence with fighter squadrons, bombers, transport. If, if something landed in Japan, especially if it wound up near one of the several massive military bases over there, we could launch an assault out of Okinawa alone that would blow most countries off the map. I, I think that Japan has a little bit of, even without having their own weaponry in place, I think Japan does have something of a safety blanket given the U.S. presence there permanently. And they're further away, you know, they're further away. I mean, if I were China and I were going to conquer the Far East, I would go to Korea and Taiwan. First. I mean, Korea's right there. Korea's, you can throw a baseball to Korea. Right. So basically, if China were to attack Taiwan, I keep asking the same question because I really am confused. Is it our business? And do we have a right? Um, if Taiwan calls up and say, hi, we need help. Now, do we have written treaties with Taiwan? Not that treaties are worth all that much or pieces of paper. But what do we do? You know, again, you have the perfect and the Ron Pauls who say the whole world can die. The whole world can fall. It's none of our business. And then you have the Lindsey Grahams and the Cheneys. And I'm trying to figure out where should I be? You know, in a perfect libertarian world, we would, like Ed said earlier, adopt George Washington's uh, admonition, you know, trade the, and friendship with everyone and not interfere with them. Um, the problem is we're still working out the details of World War II 80 years later, and uh, 70, almost 80 years later. And that's a problem. I mean, that's a real problem. World War II is not over yet. And, uh, you know, we have to come to a new, uh, we can't, America has betrayed so many allies in, um, in the last 50 years. Um, it, it, the, the foreign policy geniuses who run this country think they can do whatever they want with no consequence. And I think, um, you know, we have obligations towards Taiwan. And we, should we have those obligations? Maybe not, you know, in a perfect world, maybe not, but we do. And I'd hate to see us just screw yet another uh, country that we have obligations to. I mean, we don't have obligations to Ukraine. We do have obligations to Taiwan. Um, you know, we have obligations to the NATO countries and whatnot. Not that I necessarily- well, the obligations to Taiwan are a little, little vague though, right? I mean, ever since we withdrew diplomatic recognition and recognized communist China, 
I mean, well, they're not fake. That's the point that that they're they're more important to Taiwan because it was we're going to screw you, but we're going to protect you. That's. I mean, why should we? Why should we? Provide the military for Germany or or France. They're they're perfectly capable of doing it themselves, and we haven't screwed them. But okay, we've but screwed. How do we protect them without sacrificing a lot of American lives and a lot of American treasure? Well, that's a military question. We're too long already. Okay, true, fair enough. Ugh. I don't think anything's clearer to me, but at least we're talking about it. And again, it's going to be a bigger and bigger issue because of Ukraine and because of China. And I tend to believe that NATO was a great idea. I used to be very against so-called expansionism, um, but I don't know that NATO has much of a purpose anymore. I don't know that we should be spending a nickel on it. I have a lot of issues with us screwing allies. Um, obviously, I'm also an Israeli citizen, so I'm caught up in that issue. I'm caught up in the isolationist question of, we should have done something to stop Hitler. Well, that's really nice, but why should somebody in Oklahoma die to save a Jew in Poland? I'm not quite sure. And we didn't do much to stop other of these horrible things. We're not doing anything to stop what's supposedly going on in Western China, and should we be? So I'm just very confused about it all. So I'll there's bring this all the way. Do. There's, there's literally nothing we can do about the Uyghurs, except... Uh, except speak out about it and that we're not doing and we should be doing, but. Okay, with the economic I, sanctions. Why we, I, I disagree with Ed. Why, why should we care that, you know, we shouldn't have cared whether Hitler and Stalin killed each other and we shouldn't care whether the communists and the Muslims kill each other. I don't care which one of them is doing the killing. It's better, we wind up better off regardless of the result. I'm not saying we should encourage it and say, oh, we're, we're in favor of murder, but we should keep our mouth shut and we should let them do what they're gonna do. There's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking going on with regard to what the United States could or could not have done, for instance, to stop the Holocaust. And I don't think we could have done anything except invade Europe as soon as we, you know, overlord as soon as possible, which is what we did. And I don't, because we just didn't have airliner uh, uh, bombers that would reach that far to Auschwitz or to the other death camps. I, I just don't think we, we had the military capability. FDR was told, he, 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 no, FDR specifically put the kibosh on, on bombing either the camps or even the rail lines to the camps. I, I understand that. And I get that FDR was a bad guy, right? I mean, for, for many, many reasons. Um, you know, he's controlled by the Soviets and I think the Soviets were on board with the whole Holocaust thing too, to be honest. That's my personal opinion, but um, uh, I don't think we have anything we can do as far as we should slowly and deliberately disassociate ourselves with China economically. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I, I'm not, you know, obviously I'm not a fan of tariffs in general, but you know, this month it's gonna be 10% tariffs on everything from China. Three months from now it'll be 20, six months from now it'll be 30. Nine months from now, before you announce this in advance, and three years we're out or whatever. So I just to touch on that for a moment. I I don't know, and I'm I'm not an authority on on World War II by any means. I know some. 
we did have the most powerful Navy on the planet at that point. And ultimately when we did invade, we did not do it by air because like you said, we didn't have the capability. We put troops on the ground. We could have put troops on the ground sooner. Uh, but moving on, uh, Steve, to come back to your point, I'll bring this conversation full circle because that's beautiful. And I'll say that the point of intervention is again, clear and present imminent danger. And that's the standard. If they're killing each other, I don't care. If one of them points the gun at me, now I care. But That's isn't there a point at which it's too late? And again, I grew up in the Vietnam era with the domino theory, and I'm heavily influenced by it. Do we wait until they come to Mexico? That's where I'm stuck, and maybe we'll pick it up another time. But that's where I really confuse my Reagan conservatism versus my libertarianism has got me stuck there. I think it sucks. But again, I don't think you get to convict somebody and say they're going to do it before they do it. You can't, you can't go after someone for thought crime. But, but when they, once they moved into Poland on September 1939, it was too late. So what do yeah, you Yeah, for Poland. It was too late for Poland. If the next day everybody would have come and blitzkrieged Poland from the other side, they probably could have cut that war a whole lot shorter. Poland was screwed immediately. He wasn't anywhere else yet. Well, well, yes, imagine if Stalin had seen that betrayal coming and when the Nazis took Poland, Stalin's like, you know what the hell with this? He could have erased the Nazis right there in Poland. Well, that wasn't just Stalin. He agreed. He agreed to split the, Poland. With, right. That was part of the right, Nazi he did. pact. He did it. But I'm saying if, if he would have seen, obviously, Hitler turned on Stalin, had Stalin seen that coming, which interestingly, Stalin is famous for being obscenely paranoid to the point where he would constantly wipe out his own people around him. Yet in that one instance, he was not paranoid about the ultimate betrayal that did happen. Had Stalin seen that coming and Stalin turned on Hitler first, early on, well, before there, the Nazis you know, there is this that theory power. that There is this theory that they were both preparing to attack each other. It's just that uh, Hitler, Hitler did it first. got there first. Now, again, this is from a Soviet defector who's claimed to have seen files. I have no idea whether it's true or not, but that's the, that's the claim that, that uh, Stalin just the Russians just weren't ready, but they had pre-positioned a lot of stuff forward. And so when the Germans uh, uh, attacked, they lost a lot of their equipment because they weren't ready for the attack. And that's what, what allowed the Germans to push deep into Russia and then deep into Ukraine as well. I mean, that's his theory. It makes a certain amount of sense. Certainly Stalin oh, was great. not Hitler's friend. And, uh, right. you know, so, I mean, they, they were definitely going to come to blows. Sure. Um, and I mean, again, it's, it's so easy to Monday morning quarterback. But yes, in theory, there were a dozen different ways Hitler could have been stopped much earlier on. And the weird thing is, like, if we let them go, this is something to answer. I, I know we're way late, but this is an ads question. If we stayed out of World War II, which I think is a perfectly fine position to advocate. I'm not saying that that's I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying if we've stayed out of World War II, there would have been one of two things. Either Hitler would have been in charge of all of Europe or Stalin would have been been in charge of all of Europe because there is no free Europe at all. Either Hitler would have either Hitler would have not made so many damn mistakes and, and the Soviet Union would have split and Hitler would have controlled that and France and his friends in Spain and Italy and all that. Or the um, Red Army would have swept Hitler and kept going until they were at Brest and the Pyrenees. I mean, I think it's pretty unlike. I think it's pretty clear that without Lend-Lease, the Soviets would have been annihilated. I mean, they got within twelve miles of Moscow, and 
So, but I mean, we don't know for sure. Yeah, I love these discussions, right? Because uh, again, you know, should, Hitler had to deal with Greece. Should he have dealt with Greece? That that uh, made Barbarossa uh, six weeks late. Um, and then he he went off south uh, into Kiev because he was focused on trying to get to the Middle East instead of trying to crush the Red Army and the Soviet government. I mean, he made so many military, political military mistakes that the, you know, and Stalin didn't. You know, well, yeah, Hitler's Hitler, biggest mistake was trying to fight a, a concomitant war on 12 fronts. It's impossible. Right. But, yes. As uh, Vizzini has reminded us on many occasions. Uh, if, the, if the Japanese hadn't attacked us and it had instead attacked Soviet the, Union yes, from the east. Yep. That would, have, I think, change the outcome as well. <laughs> yeah. If he could have gotten the Japanese to do that. The problem is the United States cut off their oil supplies. And why did the United States cut off the oil supplies of Japan? Because which we did in July 1941. Well, what happened in June 1941? Barbarossa. So why did the United States cut off Japan's oil supplies in 1941? Because the government in the United States was essentially controlled by Stalin's agents. And he wanted Japan without oil so that Japan couldn't do that. And that's why we did it in July. It took Japan a couple of months to attack the United States because they we, needed- We could talk it. about this forever. I mean, that's, that's, I, that makes a lot of sense, but I mean- the, the Japanese could have worked with the, with the Nazis to get the oil fields in in uh, in the Soviet Union, and they could have split them if they had, if they'd worked together. But um, why don't we, Steve? Why don't we table this and, and talk? Yeah, about I'm going to wrap it up. Um, I'm going to go back to what we talked about three four hours ago, which is getting people out of government schools and hiring at least two eds to be our teachers. You guys are absolutely. <laughs> Awesome. Um, we're going to say goodbye to everybody because we are way over time, but I do want to pick up on these topics. Everybody's great. We'll be up within about an hour as a podcast. We invite everyone to come back next week, Wednesday at around four o'clock and to share with us any feedback, comments, etc. at ejsshow at protonmail.com. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, everybody. Always a pleasure, gentlemen.